This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it is only on POTUS, Politics in the United States. This week, the first draft of polyoptics history, C-SPAN, the true archive of America's visual political life. We welcome Steve Scully, C-SPAN anchor and senior executive producer to the broadcast. If you've seen him on TV, and come on, who hasn't, here's your chance to get to know the man and learn what drives him. Then, reading the pictures with Michael Shaw of BagNewsNotes.com. Michael is part of the Polyoptics family, and he joins us for an in-depth look at the images that are going viral on the web and what they say about the candidates and their campaigns. But first, I am joined, as always, by Joshua King, co-founder of the website Polyoptics.com. Josh, of course, was production chief in the Clinton administration, the same role I played in the George W. Bush White House. And Josh, it's great to have you here. It's great to be with you, Adam. I mean, this is uh, a week when President Obama uh, taking to the campaign trail to uh, sell his economic policies, sell the uh, manufacturing plan that he has. He goes to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and visits, you know, one of the great uh, industrial companies in the Midwest, Master Lock. Yeah, it's also a week that, in my mind, has reprimed the well a bit for the American people. We we lost uh, a musical legend in Whitney Houston, and what does that have to do with politics? Not much, but boy, hasn't it dominated the morning shows and the cable shows, and it's taken our focus a bit off of this monotonous Republican-centered primary campaign. And as we start to refocus, if we can even refocus here at the end of the week on politics, I think you're right. The, the backdrop is the president's out there and he's talking about a lot of things that mean a great deal to the American people right now. Yeah. And so if you are tired a little bit of uh, roadblock programming about uh, the death of Whitney Houston on the morning shows and on the evening shows, uh, as it, as Friday, Saturday, Sunday roll around, you might uh, gravitate over to C-SPAN or C-SPAN 2 or C-SPAN 3. That's right. And and we've we've had one really wonderful segment on C-SPAN, but we'd love to, to refocus today a little bit because C-SPAN is at the heart of polyoptics. It's, it's how you can view in context what's really going on in events and in Washington, Josh. That's right. And through the miracle of modern radio, we have coming to us from uh, the C-SPAN headquarters in Washington, D.C., a very special friend of both of ours. Our guest today on Polyoptics here on POTUS is someone we are very lucky to have, someone I've been uh, looking at trying to get on this broadcast from the day we started. He is the senior executive producer, political editor, and of course an anchor at C-SPAN Networks. And uh, he's also the host of the morning call-in show Washington Journal on Sundays, which is heard here on Sirius XM POTUS. Steve Scully, welcome to the broadcast. Adam, pleasure to be with you. Thanks so much for inviting me. Josh and I have uh, dutifully told our listeners how uh, addicted we are to C-SPAN, but 
when you think about the the personalities that drive the network, Brian Lamb and Steve Scully, top of mind. Of course, you have uh, some absolutely phenomenal executive producers there who work on the the, the documentaries that uh, take us inside the institutions of Washington. You're a native son of Erie, Pennsylvania, and you've been with the network and helped to cultivate it and and bring it into the 21st century, if you will. You must really feel a sense of pride about where C-SPAN is today. Oh, I tell you, enormous pride. Uh, Josh, as you know, and Adam, you've watched the network grow over the years. And what's important to, to really keep in mind is that we have never really changed our primary mission. Our goal remains the same, which is to take people to political events, to give them a sense of what's happening either at a congressional hearing or at a campaign event. What has changed is technology. Uh, we're using a lot of live view cameras now. We're able to go to primary and caucus states, go to the rallies, and show what's happening not only on the stage, but in the room. And so that's really been the huge uh, advancement that we've made in 2012. But we get an enormous sense of satisfaction because we can go to work every day with our head held high and proud of what's going on, all three networks, the radio station, the various uh, website offerings, knowing that nobody else really is doing what we do. I mean, what what you guys do at XM Series is phenomenal, and you really have taken a page of what uh, C-SPAN is all about. But there are very few places that really let the viewer uh, decide, let the listener get a sense of what's happening, and then make up your own mind rather than being told one way or another what's happening or how to believe on a certain issue or candidate or point of view. Steve, another thing that hasn't changed over the years is basically the way Steve Scully looks on camera. You're still the strapping 32-year-old <laughs> yeah. uh, that that I remember back in the early days uh, during the Clinton yeah, years. Yeah, I've lost my hair, and Scully still looks strong. <laughs> you're, you're too kind. I mean, I, wonder I don't know about that. that. I wonder, Steve, if that's a function of, and I, I think this is apocryphal, but uh, that the role of Brian Lamb or Steve Scully is not to so much interject your own view or own opinion, but to almost sit back and let either the video do the storytelling or the or the viewers at home express their opinions. And you're sort of like a just a foil, allowing them to, to say what they say. How did a person who really came up uh, through local TV news at, via uh, university in Washington, D.C., come to a point where it's not so much you thinking about doing the reporting, but letting the images and the viewpoints tell their own stories. How did it begin for you? Uh, I think it began at my family dinner table. I'm one of, uh, I come from a large family. I'm one of 16, five sets of twins. And at our dinner table, we had every point of view and every strong opinion. And my dad was very much involved in what was happening around the world. He was an avid reader. The nightly news at 630 was part of our staple growing up. And, you know, what I, I like to compare what we do is being the host or hostess at a dinner party because you have a lot of people around the table and you want to make sure that everyone has a point of view and everyone has their say. So in this case, we have a guest or guests at the Washington Journal table. The viewers and listeners send in their calls or comments or tweets. And you want to make sure that it's kind of a robust discussion back and forth and sometimes provocative. Uh, you don't want to be a wallflower. You want to hold uh, public officials' feet to the fire. And if they say something that's different from what they've said earlier, you want to make sure that either you uh, track them on that or more often than not, a viewer will call in almost immediately and say, hey, wait, you didn't answer the question. So it was really just growing up in a big family and, and having a lot of points of view around the table. Um, and look, we all have opinions, and, and uh, I certainly have my own views, but but that's not what 
C-SPAN is all about. My role is to facilitate the conversation and be the one place where people can really have a say on a particular issue or topic or point of view or a candidate that you're not going to get anywhere else. One of the things that I think has been the pioneering aspect of C-SPAN and endures to this day, uh, when you get past the view that only C-SPAN can bring of what's going on inside the House of Representatives on the floor of the United States Senate or even behind the scenes in very important uh, hearings that C-SPAN takes us to in an unfiltered way is that that C-SPAN, and especially under under your leadership, has started to take and change the polyoptic world in a way that you take us to political events and give us a, a bird's eye view and this very authentic understanding of what uh, Jefferson Davis uh, dinners look like and what it is to be out on the trail uh, during the election season. And it, and it's really forced people to think a little bit more about what these events look like because those C-SPAN cameras are there and the world, at least the American population, has this wonderful view on it. Uh, what's your take on that? Uh, do, have you seen people uh, start to realize that C-SPAN's cameras have a much broader reach uh, over the last 10 years or so? Well, we certainly hope so. And I, and I have to tell you that it's a, a huge staff here that puts it all together. I mean, my role is as political editor, but there's a whole team that uh, is involved in the editorial process and the marketing of C-SPAN and our terrific uh, technical staff and, uh, and the, the people who are in the field carrying the cameras and the equipment. So it really is a collective effort on all fronts. But, you know, last week I was at the CPAC conference, and when you go to political conventions or you're in New Hampshire or in South Carolina and people come up to you and... And certainly they recognize me because I'm on camera, but they always talk about the influence in, uh, that C-SPAN has and how often they watch us. And what is remarkable is that when people come on our network, George Will, for example, many years ago had written a book and was off the New York Times bestseller list. Brian Lamb did an interview with him, and it shot uh, to the top of the list again. So it shows you that it's a huge audience. Uh, it, it, we don't take ratings. We don't need to because we don't sell advertising. And yet it's people who watch... Uh, various times of the day, into the evening or overnight. Uh, Josh, as you know, Bill Clinton was one of our uh, most loyal viewers when he was governor of Arkansas and then as president. I can't tell you how often I would get a a call from a Mike McCurry or people from the president's staff saying, hey, can you send over, at that time, it would be a VHS about something that he'd seen, a hearing or speech or something, uh, because he'd be up at four or five in the morning or late, you know, working till one or two in the morning and would see something and want to you know, see the entire event. So we have a. What they said at the <laughs> agriculture committee. I need to get exactly that get Scully on the phone right now. And it was it became a running joke. Yeah, let's make another dub for the White House. But of course, we in 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 return we were able to get that bus in front of the White House with uh, Mike McCurry and the late Tony Blankley uh, back in 1996. Nobody did more appearances as president than Bill Clinton. You know, it's funny. I was just thinking about it. Uh, I'm no stranger to that either. I I made more than a few personal pleas to Steve Scully when I was serving in the White House for tape or things that we needed. Uh, But it it really speaks to the fact that C-SPAN serves all Americans. Uh, And Josh and I talk about this a lot, but the visualization of our politics... Uh, the, the charisma of our candidates, uh, the, the the context of these events has a huge impact in the authenticity and the integrity of the process and the people who are committing their lives to it. And so I have never found a more uh, important window than C-SPAN. And yet at the same time, 
you have innovated. I mean, uh, a process that works, Josh, is, is, is now uh, one that works for absolutely everyone because the digital elements of, of C-SPAN have just exploded in the last few years. We're yeah, often getting more people watching online than on, on, on the network because of the influence of the web. So how, what are the tools that you're making available to, uh, to your, your old-time cable viewers and, and the people who are migrating onto their iPads? Well, first of all, I think we offer a product, uh, well, I know for a fact that the cable industry uh, appreciates what we do. It's something that they can market to people who are obviously looking for cable or satellite. So first and foremost, we want to make sure that we're always relevant and always putting something on the air that uh, has value to, to the industry and also to viewers at home. But look, we're in a very competitive industry. We need to make sure that people have uh, C-SPAN where they watch and listen. So that's why we're on satellite radio. That's why we're uh, making uh, apps available. That's why the web is uh, a huge tool for us. And, and think about the video library. You know, we were joking about Bill Clinton wanting to watch something, and we have to make the VHS dub and send it off to the White House or President Bush. It's now all on the web. The video library is an enormous tool, and that's really the vision of Brian Lamb to say, look, we have all of these resources. Let's make it available. We're an open and transparent network. Everything that we've covered is on our network. We're not going to you know, hide anything. So whether it's an interview or whether it's a hearing or a campaign speech, it's all there. And if you look at the campaign ads of 2012, yes. uh, it's amazing. Look at the Mitt Romney campaign ads, uh, the anti-Romney ads from video that we covered in 19. 1994 with his campaign against Ted Kennedy. So it's available out there for everyone. It's a great research tool. It's a great educational tool. It's a great political tool for campaigns. That raises a very interesting question, Steve. I mean, the 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 focus on oppo research in this cycle has never been greater. And the, uh, the use of archival video, especially when uh, Mitt Romney had to position himself far more center or even to the left of, of Ted Kennedy, or at least pull himself way into the Senate to try and win that Senate seat in 1984. So much content created, and yet you know uh, the influence of the super PACs on this cycle. They want that footage, and they want it for sort of negative campaigning. What's the process by which they feel like they can make a request to C-SPAN and actually use it in their pieces? Well, quite frankly, they take it anyhow off the web. It's That's either right. on YouTube or other sources, Permission so there's really not much we can do. It. <laughs> I mean, we can try to uh, rein it in, but uh, what we cover is on the web. It's out there. It's been on YouTube, and so they can use it however they want. Uh, obviously, if they're going to air entire events, we're going to you know have a cease and desist, and if they're going to use our logo, we're going to try to stop that. But in terms of what we've covered over the years, it, you know, the the... The horse is out of the barn. It's very difficult to try to, to control that. We do try, but we don't always succeed. Josh, uh, one of the things that uh, that I think about a lot is uh, you know the sort of repurposing of material like we're talking about right now, people taking archival material from the only place where you can really honestly access it, which is C-SPAN, who has been wall-to-wall covering these campaigns and been in the weeds for so long. We're talking about a 1994 uh, Senate uh, campaign, which is so uh, obviously important to folks as we look again at Mitt Romney as a presidential candidate. But the, the truth is, is, is also there for people who aren't on our radar today, but they are caught up in that wide net that C-SPAN captures. Um, and, and I think that uh, even as you look at production values at the White House, this is a tool that you know presidents need to have, and you just can't duplicate the resources, can you? 
Uh, no, and and it 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 does provide such a a resource, and uh, you know it's probably worth asking Steve to bring us back to the founding of C-SPAN and you know the cable television industry. Obviously, they were upending the long-held view that television for Americans was free as long as you had rabbit ears and you were within uh, range of a of a tower and uh, and you can pick up a local affiliate signal, you can watch anything you want. And then cable television comes on the scene and suddenly we're getting a bill uh, from cable providers. And so there has to be sort of a public service. Uh, some some reason that we would look more favorably on the, on, the, on the notion that we have cable television beyond the fact that it's a crisper signal. But Steve, can you tell us sort of what went behind the actual original decision to bring American C-SPAN? Absolutely. I, I have to go back to two other points, though, and, and I'll get to your answer, too, Josh. But it, I was covering the, the uh, Romney campaign back in 1994, so I'm the guy holding that microphone as he's interacting with voters. It's become the source of a lot of uh, anti-Romney ads. And we covered a state senator from Illinois by the, with a funny first and last name in the late 1990s at events here in Washington, the very first time Barack Obama popped up on the C-SPAN radar mm-hmm. screen. And I mention that because we're now covering, after being on the air for 30 years, which will go to your question about how we began, young political figures who in the next 15 to 20 years may be senators, governors, and future presidents that we have in the C-SPAN archive. So it's a great resource to, to follow this process as we're seeing now with Mitt Romney. We began, it was Brian Lamb's vision. Uh, he worked in uh, the Nixon and the Johnson White Houses. He understood how this town worked. And he saw how the Vietnam War was being covered by the mainstream media. And he felt that there was so much more happening in this town that was not being covered. And so it was uh, his idea as he worked into the cable industry in the mid-1970s to cover Congress. And the reason why the House is on C-SPAN is simple. They were the first to have cameras in the House of Representatives and C-SPAN too. With the Senate, they came on board in 1986. And uh, the hearings then followed. And then we started to do interview programs. And the call-in program, long before Larry King did uh, call-in shows on CNN, we were doing them here on C-SPAN. But the, the, the very simple message was there's a lot that happens in this town that's not getting covered pre-internet. Uh, we need to show the process and let the American viewers decide what they think about hearings in Congress and political figures. So that's how it began. Uh, nothing more complicated than that. The industry came on board, some key people, some pioneers who gave C-SPAN the initial seed money. And as I said, now our goal is to make sure that we remain relevant, timely, important and valuable. Nobody else does what we do, and there is no other network like it anywhere in the world funded by the cable industry through private donors, no government influence, and uh, showcasing the political process, warts and all. We've had on this show, Steve, uh, Antoine Sanfuentes and Chuck Todd from NBC, Nancy Cordes from CBS, George Stephanopoulos from ABC, and it's clear as we talk to them how intense the competition is for them in the in political coverage to even get you know to a two minute package on in the evening uh, based on what they see going on in the whole of Washington, and sometimes it's reduced to nothing more than. I mean, you talk about sound bites, like a 30-second sound bite. Mm. We're talking about a five-second sound bite, something that might give viewers just the, the barest thumbnail of what happened. And yet what you do, and I think what campaigns themselves are doing more and more of, um, is 
is showing the event from beginning to end because as Adam and I always think, you know, it's not so much what happens at the crescendo of a of a candidate's preparation, but you know, what hap- what what's the crowd like? What's the reverse shot like? What you know, is he is he giving this right into a teleprompter or are there 30,000 people out there? So, I mean, what C-SPAN does is really pull back the curtain and let us see the whole thing and not just that fu- that ultimate packaged piece. And, and the other part of the equation is that uh, as the network evening newscast has a shrinking audience, but still a significant audience, and, and you're absolutely right, in a 22-minute package of programming, there might be eight or ten minutes of real news outside of their features and other programming, which is interesting. And I watch the evening news, and I, I think they do a fine job. But because of their approach, it allows C-SPAN. It allows a POTUS to provide the programming, provide the editorial direction that you're not going to get anywhere else. And so we really view that as an opportunity. Uh, And, you know, I I tell students when they come here to C-SPAN, if you go to a bookstore or you go to look for magazines and newspapers, there are a lot of choices out there. You can choose any kind of magazine you want from sports to, you know, homemaking to gardening to to wine cellars. And so we're one of those choices. C-SPAN is one place you can go if you're interested in politics. And look, nobody's going to watch us for five, six, seven hours a day. They don't follow it as closely as we do. Well, but don't say no one, it, it's there. because I do. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you. Uh, but, but it's out there. It, it's there if you want it. If you want to go somewhere else, you might do that and then come back and, and, and watch Watch an hour-long interview or 30-minute part of hearing or two hours of uh, the Washington Journal. Uh, We're a choice out there, and we'd like to think that we're an important and viable choice uh, to the listener and viewer. When I was serving as uh, production chief, deputy communications director in the George George W. Bush White House, um, the topic of... What, what we called the Bush legacy um, and, and the Bush record, which was really a, a campaign to try and, you know, nail down uh, the four corners of the Bush record from our perspective. Uh, the topic of exit interviews was really at the forefront of, of our planning. And uh, one of the, the most important exit interviews that we did, and it was probably the longest of anyone uh, done, was it was a sit-down with you in the Oval Office and, and George W. Bush uh, late in 2008. And uh, I was so nervous about this interview uh, just because of the nature of the historical record, that this was something that would not only be seen now uh, and again and again, but really deep into the future. Uh, but I remember the president remarking after the interview that uh, he enjoyed it so much because it had nothing to do with with you, Steve, that it was all about, you know, insightful questions and it was very thoughtfully done with no interruptions in, in a true C-SPAN style. Do you remember that time that we spent there in the Oval Office oh, with very President well. Bush? I'll never forget the interview, uh, both on a personal standpoint, because it was the day before my wife and I were going to go to Las Vegas to uh, adopt our now three-year-old daughter, and uh, I didn't know that the president knew about that, and he came in and he said, I understand that uh, congratulations are in order. What a, what a joyous act of love. And the name of the adoption agency was called Act of Love. So from a personal standpoint, I was like stunned. And then uh, then you had to focus on the interview in the Oval Office, uh, thanks to you uh, for making it happen. And what I remember about that is that we had a, a series of meetings here at C-SPAN to try to figure out what would be the best questions. And we didn't want it to be, uh, we wanted to be thought-provoking and interesting. We wanted to give him the chance to really uh, take the long view of his eight years in the White House, uh, look what worked and what didn't work. 
But that's what our approach is. We want to have a conversation. We want this is a chance for people to hear from the president. It's not a chance to hear from the person who's doing the interview to show how smart they are, because that's not what our role is. Let the other networks do that. Our our role is to ask direct, insightful. Uh, to-the-point questions and follow up with appropriate questions, uh, but not get in the way because you're having a conversation. And the best way to have the conversation is to listen. Josh and I, I, we were passing around the the transcript and uh, was rereading it and reliving it in my mind. And Josh, it it's it's so much like uh, so many of the of the great pieces that come out of C-SPAN. It just stands the test of time. It seems as relevant to me today as a conversation with the president of the United States as uh, as anything else. Yeah, well, maybe you can know, give us a plug at the current White House and get one with the president I've right noticed, now. I've <laughs> noticed the last time it, that, that you interviewed Barack Obama was uh, in 2009. 2009. Yep. It's been a tough get. Well, look, we've and we talked about that, I think, uh, last week with James Fallows, who has the March cover issue of... Uh, or the March cover issue of The Atlantic, Obama explained, and he was talking about how he would have loved to uh, have a sit-down with President Obama for a thoughtful addition to this uh, major piece that he was putting together. But, you know, that White House, this White House, decided that uh, an audience, a writer like Fallows and an audience like Atlantic is probably not where their su- sweet spot is. And I think for maybe some of the reasons you enunciated, Steve, the the notion that a, a 20, 30-minute sit-down would be fodder for so much later on because it does get so much into the mainstream that it might not be worth the risk. But, you know, it, it these do stand up, uh, your interview with President Obama and your, your exit interview with President Bush, uh, as historical documents. It's not like the president going out to Milwaukee to give a rally, to give a speech at Master Lock. This is a, an opportunity to cover a range of issues and talk at length and you know only c-span really can do it and put it on the air like that steve uh our, our listeners should know here in polyoptics also served as the president of the white house correspondence association that was in the year 2006 2007 but as a young journalist uh in washington uh i thought i had arrived josh and i know you had been going to these and helping to produce them for president clinton but the white house correspondence association dinner is like <laughs> the the most uh wonderful thing that you can be a part of, especially as a young journalist in Washington. But one thing I remember going way back is that uh, Steve Scully always had a very, very wonderful date that he would bring to these. Will you, will you share that with folks, Steve? Oh, absolutely. Uh, well, my, my, my father passed away early in the Clinton administration, so my mom... Uh, would come down every year uh, for uh, 18 years, and she was a regular with uh, the Clintons, who were always gracious, and uh, that's kind of you to ask. And uh, she uh, passed away just before her 90th birthday, but uh, having had 16 kids and uh, I think at last count 37 grandkids and four great-grandkids, she did pretty well. That could really sway the Pennsylvania vote a little bit, couldn't it? You get all those people? (laughs) I think it did, actually. (laughs) Uh, I mean, on that point, Steve... um, if if we if we can indulge in you just for a second to sort of be on the other side of the the questioning, your reflection on this GOP campaign so far as a guy who is the fourteenth of sixteen children coming from Erie, Pennsylvania, a battleground state if there ever was one, having in this race Senator Rick Santorum who spent so much of it in the cellar of the polls and suddenly he is the only seeming viable alternative to Mitt Romney. Do you? If you think about Santorum as a blue-collar representative of the conservative side of the Republican Party, do you see where his appeal is beginning to emerge against the character that has been Romney? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you look at uh, Rick Santorum, and I think if any of us were having a conversation a month ago saying that Rick Santorum would be tied or head with uh, Mitt Romney in states like Michigan and Ohio, you would have thought we're crazy. But what I tell people is that campaigns matter, and in a campaign, you have to have a message. And I think what we're seeing right now is a lot of people within the Republican Party looking at the message of Mitt Romney, looking at the message of Newt Gingrich, and looking at Rick Santorum. And as things change in the economy, you know, maybe the message of being a turnaround artist, who knows, might not be as important. But I can absolutely see Rick Santorum as somebody who grew up in western Pennsylvania, has seen what he was able to do in his two House races and twice uh, in his Senate bids in Pennsylvania, uh, campaigning effectively. He's a very good campaigner. He relates well to people. And so it doesn't surprise me looking at how he's evolved in this campaign and uh, shaped his message, which has been consistent, uh, why he's now uh, even or head in the polls. And that makes it a fascinating race for us, and uh, I think we're all kind of hoping for a brokered convention so we can at least see what that was like. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but um, I think messages matter, and I think that that's one of the lessons of this campaign thus far. We are very grateful that you spent some time on a day when you're preparing for a radio broadcast that you do, uh, I think, five days a week over there at C-SPAN, keeping people uh, in the loop with what's going on in Washington today, um, and for your support, because what we do as a visual complement uh, to the politics of Washington is is really just uh, uh, the tip of the iceberg to something that, that you all uh, deliver on every day at C-SPAN, and we're huge fans and, and very grateful that you take time to talk to us today on Polyoptics. Adam, Josh, pleasure to be with you. Keep up the great work and uh, anytime. Thanks for having me. So Josh King, we are not alone in the universe as we try and dissect visual communications. We, we have a unique space, though, uh, as practitioners in the way that we look at political communication through a visual lens. But there are some other really important folks out there who are doing this on a very full-time basis. Yeah, and, and we've found some of them from time to time. I mean, I had a conversation with uh, Julie Weiner of Vanity Fair who writes their daily blog. She spends like every waking hour looking at Pete Souza's White House photo blog and, and putting up commentary and creating sort of uh, her own uh, different takes on all the photos that pass by. But it, it is rare because, Adam, as you and I both talked about, the photo editor's decision of what goes on the top of A1 or inside the paper is so much a, a matter of wh- what they think is the, is the commentary on the story. And yet, for so many readers, it just looks like filler. But people like you, me, and Michael Shaw, it means a lot more. Yeah, Michael Shaw, he's a clinical psychologist. He's an analyst of uh, visual journalism, and uh, he's also the founder and editor and prolific writer at Bag News Notes. You've you've heard him here on Polyoptics, and you'll hear a lot more of him as we go forward in 2012. Michael, welcome back to the broadcast. Thanks, Josh. I'm really glad to be here. And hi, Adam. Hey, let me ask you something. Uh, Josh makes this point, and every time he does, I, I find myself just nodding, thinking about the role of that photo editor. And uh, the pictures that we see so often are ones that are recomposed and ones that are 
selected out of a sea of other photographs. What you often do are find the photographs that aren't widely distributed, ones that journalists are out there taking and capturing that maybe aren't getting picked up. Talk to us a little bit about bag news and uh, what you're trying to strive for when you bring forward these political images for folks. Well, the focus of bag news is to analyze news photos for uh, media bias and political spin. Uh, we've been around for about eight years now, and we do it on a daily basis, sometimes with contributors, sometimes with a, a panel of um, photojournalists uh, and visual academics. But uh, in terms of the point, the observation you just made, I think it goes both ways. Um, sometimes what we do is we'll ferret out an image that captures something really central about, say, like the uh, campaign that people aren't really plugging into. And I think one of the three images we'll talk about today is a classic example of that. Other times we are looking at the, the central image that maybe, you know, most of the photo editors isolated out and you could find on every photo gallery and on three or four front pages. And sometimes there's um, some messaging uh, or something significant about those very common photos that, um, you know, that can be elaborated and, and clarified also. So I, th- I think it moves in both directions. Josh, you love this site. I do, and I've been a big fan of Michael's for a long time. Uh, you know, I, I think as you, as you pull out uh, pictures, for instance, uh, there's a shot that you have of Rick Santorum probably giving a Sunday sermon. Uh, and you look in the background and you think, well, if it was Josh King created a, creating a Clinton event, I would want those choir boys sort of standing ramrod straight, all looking ahead, hopefully with smiles on their faces. And yet what Steve Crowley of the New York Times captures is Santorum so earnest at the microphone trying <laughs> to make his point, And yet the choir boys are all either in half dozing, fully asleep, or on their or on their uh, smartphones. It's a uh, it's a telling picture about uh, how candidates sometimes cannot command a room. Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting photo, and it is an example of one of the more subtle ones. Um, this was in a photo gallery uh, uh, right before the Florida um, primary, and this is in this uh, cycle where every day they'll dump seven, twelve, fifteen photos. Uh, and they and people, you know, you just click through them very quickly. This one just jumped out at us, and we tweeted about it and put it on Tumblr, and 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 people really went crazy because I thought, whoa, um, you know, there's a real disconnection here. What it was taken on January 22nd, right before the primary. It's Santorum speaking at um, the uh, Worldwide Christian Center in Pompano Beach. You see him at the um, uh, the uh, uh, pulpit, and um, he is speaking really earnestly, sort of looking to the lower right of the photo. His hand is up, looking extremely earnest, but in the background, what you see is the our choir members, mostly young. A lot of them are, are young, young people, even some kids, a couple of the adults, and the, the, the kids, the, they're mostly... There's maybe a couple girls in there, but they're uh, mostly boys to the on to, uh, on the right side of the picture, sitting back, just exhausted, bored out of their minds, sort of going crazy. One guy's looking into his hands. I don't think he has a cell phone, but he might as well have one. On the far left of the picture, you see a woman who is fanning uh, another boy who looks like he's about to pass out, and you think, you know, oh my God, what is it? Is it August? But you know, it's not. It's February. So the disconnect between the, these choir members who are just like bored out of their minds, 
and then this really earnest Santorum is a really, really strange photo. Um, and then, you know, from there, we, we had some thoughts about it in terms of, of what's going on. Uh, and, and, and maybe the three of us can talk about it, or if, if you want some interpretation, I'll... You know, I'll, I'll I'd love to hear. Right I'd love to hear some interpretation on it because Josh put his finger right in on it for me. You know, as a practitioner, whether uh, it's it's Josh King uh, conceiving of an event uh, for President Bill Clinton or something that that I may have uh, been involved in in the Bush White House, my biggest fear would always be <laughs> what's going on right behind you know the president or the or the principal Josh and you know when you have such an obvious disconnect and we often talk about the power of the still image i mean it's almost like you'd rather have not done the event at all if the net net is yeah the candidate bores people to tears <laughs> but uh, but but adam i mean i think you should you should answer this which is um the mission of a wire photographer someone shooting for reuters or ap is very different from steve crowley Pulitz, uh, an award-winning photographer for the new york times you can tell you know if he if his editors are gonna spring for the cash for a ticket to fly down to Pompano Beach with his Leica cameras. This guy is more of an artist than a news gatherer. And so, I mean, Adam, y- you saw this from with people like uh, uh, Paul Hosefros and, and Steve Crowley, uh, and, you know, and, and their ilk at the Times. The Times is doing something spe- something unique here, and they wouldn't assign this photographer down to Florida if they wanted him to just bring a straight shot back from no, a you're, wire. No, you're absolutely right. And, Michael, you, you see this, too. It, it, it's, it's almost this idea that there are certain photographers that are out there to go make the mainline shot, the crystallized, it was a speech, just put it out in the wire and that was it. And then you get folks where sometimes you wonder, and and I I can freely admit that I uh, get a little over emotional and somewhat cynical about these things. Are they out there with an agenda to try and find the angle or that instantaneous moment where everything doesn't work and and it's agenda-driven photography? Or is it that artistic and very real eye that can capture uh, everything going on in one frame? It's probably the latter. And when it works, it's wonderfully advantageous, uh, both to readers and to principals. But, uh, well, uh, l- let's talk politics and let's talk specifics of this campaign. Uh, I agree with um, what Adam's saying in terms of uh, Crowley's agenda versus perhaps the Newswire agenda. But in, uh, in these three photos that I sent you, I think that they, it's almost like everyone has wire photos, uh, photographers as well, have more of that Crowley agenda. The, in, the, in the three pictures, the, this one of um, uh, Santorum in the church and then a photo of Romney standing on a chair that went really absolutely viral, and then a photo of um, Newt Gingrich. Newt, Newt Gingrich at a, in a... All a of these fo- are going to be up on polyoptics.com, so you can go back and visualize every element of what Josh and, uh, and Michael are saying. But continue, Michael. Yeah, and the, the photo of Newt is, is not showing him from the, uh, the orientation that the campaign wanted, but kind of takes it, flips it around uh, from the back, and you see these factory workers, not as props, but as the subject matter with Newt in the background... What's happening with all these three pictures, and I think is also a trend in this campaign, is that um, there's a real, I, I would call it like an integrity factor in play. 
I think what's happening this year more than others, whether it's a Crowley or it's a Chip Summit Avia, you know, from, from Getty, who's out there, you know, grinding it out every day, is that the journalists this year, photojournalists, seem to be sidestepping the, the, the setup shot or the photo op much more looking, at, and I think raising questions of uh, the um, integrity of these candidates, both in the moment, like in the church, and also, I think, just overall. So, so, I think that, so I think there's something more specific in play in terms of how this particular campaign, maybe with, you know, the quality of the candidates or the way they're, you know, really having to, you know, lean in an extreme way into certain issues, um, you know, I think, th- I think that they're being called on it. What do you visually. think, Josh? I think it's it's as much there's a, there was a wonderful book uh put out by Michael Evans I think is around 1988 uh called um uh, with photography from the 1988 campaign, and I can't remember the name of it. We'll put it up on the website. But it showed a picture of Michael Dukakis standing on the exact same chair, uh, type chair that you have um, Mitt Romney standing on. It what didn't show the aide frantically holding on to the to the feet, but it showed the humanity of a primary campaign. And I think these three shots are not so much calling a candidate on their integrity but more just looking at the homespun nature of what happens of candidates who've spent the better part of a year, day in, day out, always trying to talk to more people, whether they happen to be, a, uh, whether the, the choir that backs them up happens to be a little sleepy, or in the case of Newt Gingrich, whether the factory line is still operating, or with Mitt Romney, that just to be able to elevate himself over the crowd, he needs an aide to hold the chair steady. And I think there's a level of kind of honesty about that, if that's what you want to call integrity. But you can compare, and and that raises this sort of issue of the advantage that an incumbent will have in the summer, uh, or that an incumbent has at least comparing themselves to the campaign right now, which is, I'm looking at a, 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 a whole set of pictures taken this week from Wassa, or from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the, the Wassa Daily Herald, showing President Obama at the master lock factory. And I can guarantee you that for security reasons, that assembly line was totally focused on the president's visit and that when the president is involved you have much more focus much more security keeping lenses from some of those more obtuse angles again yeah i i i agree with you in the in the abstract uh, in the specific what was interesting about the the photo um of mitt romney staying on a chair uh he's in uh it's the week before the iowa primary and the shot that went viral, because there were so many different versions of it, shows was, and which was taken by Jules Samad of Getty, um, only shows Romney up to uh, above his thighs, and then you don't see the top of him. What you do see is one of those wire chairs that you'll see, like whatever in some old ice cream parlor, wire based to the chair, so it's sort of like you know a rickety chair, little round wooden seat. Romney's standing on it, so you only see him up to his thighs, and then you see. Uh, an audience of people that are there to, to hear him speak, mostly senior citizens in the background, looking at uh, us and in, in, in behind. But the, the focus of the photo is this aide uh, uh, to Romney who's hunched over and holding that chair for dear life. He totally is as well. Could you imagine being responsible <laughs> if something went bad, you know, if the candidate just sort of toppled off the chair? Exactly. I could feel his fear in that photograph, exactly, Josh. Exactly, exactly. The, the, but then the question is, 
why did this particular photo, and not the one, say, that some of Davia took that shows all of Romney, you know, which makes it like a kind of, you know, a cuter photo, but why did this one go viral, you know, for two or three days? It was the talk of, you know, blogosphere and photo sites. And if you start to, like, look at the comments, because now it's there's like a kind of big comment community that is, does this sort of high and low kind of analysis of these images, the interpretation of this, pic, this picture was amazing, and it starts to, like, really plug into all these dynamics about Romney and the Romney campaign. Like, people are saying, I mean, here's just a, a set of different things people were saying about it. They're saying, you know, that he's got an insubstantial base, or they're saying that the photo questions his foundation or his core. Um, someone else talks about, you know, this, how it posed for the corporate association, that this is like that it emphasizes Obama and the underlings, you know, or that he could be, you know, or, and, the, and that in pro, the proximity of his hand to this, his foot to this guy's hand, you know, these are the kinds of people, these corporate guys that step on people. Other people went, just totally went wild with the whole idea of, you know, of this uniform that uh, Romney traded, you know, he traded in his coat and tie for, this jeans uniform, that, the LL Bean grandpa jeans and, and the loafers. And especially in contrast to the staffers' work boots, which are like probably the largest element in the in the picture, um, one of my readers, in fact, was talking about how you know these aren't plain plain folk jeans that he wears. You know, if you look at them, there's no wrinkles. It doesn't look like he ever wiped his hands on them, or that he's ever gotten on his knees in those jeans. Um, other people talk about how is the fact that his head's cut off is also a kind of signal. Uh, and reflection of Romney this year, you know, that he's not uh, integral. You know, he's, not, he's an incomplete, um, you know, f- figure. Um, the fact he's above everybody, that people are having to look up to him. Uh, so, I mean, there, there are, like, particular dynamics to this, these photos. That- this fascinates me, I, I must say. I mean, you know, Josh is, I think, appropriately cynical, and, and, and he brings uh, a really honest element uh, of... You know why you don't tend to see these kinds of photographs, uh, you know, with the president because nobody's going to get that angle, and we don't let people back there, and we we corral f- the photographers in a way that you really can't when you're out there on the trail. But the fact of the matter is, uh, and we know this at Polyoptics, that everyone is is going to have a different opinion and, and see something different in photographs. There was there was one other. Uh, compare and contrast that I think was worthy of, of comment. Uh, and Michael, you gave us a look at this, and it was uh, a, a lesser-known scene from the White House uh, Science Fair that was sponsored last week. We got the great marshmallow air gun photograph, Josh, but yeah, it's, it's Barack Obama just in an embrace with some students uh, in the red room of the White House, and he's just He's, he's like the dad-in-chief. He's, he's giving him a hug. He's proud of him. And, and it stands in, in, in a very interesting contrast to a very awkward embrace that we saw of, again, Mitt Romney with his own grandchildren. Uh, did, did you see that at all, Josh? Did you, did you buy into that contrast? Or you think they both sort of stand on their own and, and shouldn't be contrasted? Well, I mean, I, I think that uh, candidates and presidents relish the opportunity when... 
without intruding on a private moment, a photographer is able to find a moment of humanity in an otherwise inhumane process of either being a candidate or being president. So, and we've seen this over and over again. I remember uh, in 1993, uh, a cataclysmic flood uh, came over Cedar Rapids and basically deluged the entire town. And President Clinton was heading out to Asia and decided to take Air Force One down to Cedar Rapids. It was one of the first times a president had sort of come immediately to the to the mm-hmm. to the site of a disaster. Presidents usually sort of stayed away until until the coast was really clear. And President Clinton said, I'm gonna go. And so photographers came and said, look, we can take pictures of floods, we can take pictures of presidents and helicopters. But what we really want to see is is something that demonstrates the president's pa- compassion for the victims. And so there was one moment in which you just hugging a crying child a crying girl and it was on the cover of all the it was you know it was sort of a roadblock on all of the front pages that day it was the first time that that had happened and it's sort of certainly my memory but i i, I just think i i don't read in as much uh as michael might and nor his readers to uh what is really at play here except that it's awfully hard for photographers on assignment to capture humanity on the campaign trail. And when they do, it tends to rise up in the photo editor's mind and said, that's what we should put in the paper because that's something other than was manufactured by the White House or the campaign. Well, the element of of examining and understanding and reading the pictures is something that we will continue to turn to Michael Shaw for at Bag News. You have to go check them out as you do uh, our blog at polyoptics.com. You can find Michael Shaw at bagnewsnotes.com. And you should follow him on Twitter because there's no better way to keep up with the visual imagery that uh, Bag News and the team there are, are putting out on a daily basis. I mean, literally, if there's no other show on radio that's dedicated to uh, visual uh, theater of politics the way that polyoptics is. Uh, Bag News Notes has been around even longer and they are committed to it on a 365-day basis. Uh, Michael Shaw, thanks for being back with us here on Polyoptics. I really appreciate it and uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to uh, you know tease out some more images as we go forward. Absolutely. We'll talk to you soon. Great. Thanks, thanks a lot. So, Josh, I mean, we're talking about all these these wonderful pictures and the analysis that goes on at Bag News. You, better than anyone else I know, have been through so many of these kinds of situations. Were you were you ever? Do you have a duplicate experience to some of the stuff we were talking about? Well, Adam, I I, just, I think the experience of being a young campaign aide like Garrett Jackson in that picture of Mitt Romney speaking uh, uh, on the campaign trail that we'll put up on the website is one that is shared by advanced men and women, Democratic and Republican and independent alike. It's the notion that in a nascent campaign, before you you have the money or you have the advanced planning to build a stage, light it, get perfect sound, you're just trying to elevate yourself slightly higher so that the crowd can see you, so that the press corps in the, crammed into the back of the room can see you. And here's Garrett Jackson holding on for dear life, lest his candidate come toppling down onto the wood floor of this event site. And it reminded me of a moment uh, as we were heading into the Chicago uh, Democratic Convention in uh, 1996. We'd been on a train trip from Huntington, West Virginia, all through uh, Kentucky, Ohio, and Indiana, and we finally made it to... Uh, um, we were somewhere in uh, in Ohio, and uh, in Chicago, the convention was going on, and I think Hillary Rodham Clinton was giving a speech, uh, and she 
shouted out to her husband, Bill, the president, who was live on stage uh, somewhere in Chicago, and I was crouched into a little ball uh, in the buffer zone b- between the stage and the crowd, and I was on a cell phone with Gary Smith, the producer of the Democratic National Convention, who was telling me, giving me the, f- the, the high sign that uh, Hillary was on stage in front of all the delegates, reaching out to her husband, and now is the time for Bill to sort of stop talking to the crowd, look into the camera in that uh, head-on shot uh, to the pool camera, and almost speak directly to the 15,000 delegates and an audience at the uh, United Center in Chicago. And so from p- putting myself in this fetal position, just trying to hear the audio from Chicago, and then springing up like a sunflower to wave to the president to get his attention to say, Guy, stop giving this rally speech. You're on live with Chicago. And the president looked down at me again in front of like 20,000 people said, Josh, can they hear me in Chicago? And I said, yes, sir, go <laughs> ahead. And and so that was, again, the image of, of these young aides like Jason, like Garrett Jackson working for Mitt Romney who have to crouch in these tiny little places just to try and make an event come off as planned. You know what? I, I absolutely was living that moment just hearing you talk about it. And it reminded me of one I have to share with you. The Pope is meeting with the President of the United States. We've just done the uh, arrival ceremony on the South Lawn, and they're in the mansion. And we're getting ready for that iconic shot of uh, the Holy Father, the President of the United States, walking uh, through the colonnade uh, beside the Rose Garden up to the Oval Office. And the press is just jam-packed in there, Josh, and you've seen this kind of thing before. And they're on a riser, and they start to snap their shots, and the president's walking. And I'd kind of rehearsed this a little bit with them about where would be an appropriate place to stop. We didn't do a toe mark. So they're, they're kind of walking and talking. And here I am, this sort of heavy-set Jew, waving at the, uh, at the Holy Father and the President of the United States. I'm the, I mean, everyone's shooting, and I'm the only guy trying to stand behind them. And I'm waving, waving, trying to get them to wave at me. And there's some great pictures. They finally turn, and they sort of make a wave at folks. And I realize, yep, they were waving at me. <laughs> and uh, I just thought that was going to make a better picture. Uh, I love having these discussions, and I love I love thinking about that Max Whitaker New York Times photo of, of President Obama in the Red Room um, with this hug that I almost want to be a part of. I mean, there's something about President Obama that is very sincere, and when he when he sort of is the the father in chief, you, you get a really great sense of his uh, charisma and his magnetic personality that people describe. And uh, and even though uh, the alternative photograph that people will find on our website uh, from Molly Riley, who was doing uh, pool duty for Getty Images uh, that we were talking about, Mitt Romney with his grandchildren, there's something there that at least gives you a glimpse. You can draw your own conclusion, but it doesn't draw me in in a way that Barack Obama of late has. And being able to harness those images uh, can be a great benefit to a campaign. And that's right. I think these candidates, whether it's Santorum, Romney, Obama, or even Gingrich, are at their best when they figure out ways to demonstrate their humanity. I think it ha- it worked for, for Gingrich in Iowa when he was talking about his mother and her health problems. Uh, it, it frankly worked for Barack Obama in the White House shooting a marshmallow gun at the science fair. That, that let's, let's get them away from their podiums for a minute and show that these are human beings too. 
So uh, a little bit of a tease going forward as we end this episode of Polyoptics here on POTUS Series XM 124. Josh and I are proud to announce that at a date as yet uncertain, we will have the official White House photographer, Pete Souza join us here on this broadcast. And that's something we're really excited about, Josh. That's right. I mean, Pete Souza uh, runs the White House photo office at a time when digital photography and the tools of distribution uh, have allowed people to get this behind-the-scenes glimpse of history as it happens. It's the kind of stuff, Adam, that we'd have to wait to sort of pour through presidential libraries to see, and Pete serves serves it up to us every week, and we're going to have a great conversation with him. That's right, and he did this job in the Reagan White House uh, to think an official White House photographer to President Reagan, uh, reprising the role as an innovator uh, under the leadership of Barack Obama. This is an interview that uh, was made for Polyoptics, and we'll be bringing it to you very soon. Josh, good to be with you again, and uh, we will be back next week here on POTUS. This is POTUS. Politics of the United States for the people of the United States. This is POTUS. Sirius XM 124.